This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, December 1st, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include some discussion and fact-checking of accusations leveled about Apple recently on social media, plus how to choose an external drive. We've got a quick session on the options. Now... Here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving, Josh? Yeah, yeah, it was nice. Good holiday weekend. Got to enjoy some time with family. It was, it was good. How was your Black Friday? Uh, not too bad. I, I found a couple of deals. Interestingly, not quite as good as a deal that I could have gotten a couple weeks earlier on one particular high-priced item. Yeah, Black Friday, <laughs> I don't know. It's the, the problem is, first of all, there's deals all the time. And Black Friday is not like exclusively the day for there to be deals. If you try to wait for Black Friday the day, you're not necessarily going to get the best deals, even though you might be thinking that you will. It's kind of, you know, it's one of those things. Well, I bought some cat food. <laughs> we regularly buy cat food from Amazon, and some of the cat food we regularly buy was discounted about 10, 15%, even below what we pay and subscribe and save. So I've got two big boxes of cat food coming tomorrow. All right. Well, that was my exciting Black Friday. <laughs> this week, we want to talk about what Elon Musk called the secret Apple tax the fact that when a developer sells an app in the App Store, when they sell a subscription in the App Store, Apple takes 30%. We're going to go through a timeline of a number of events that have led to a great deal of misunderstanding around that. Now, if you don't use Twitter, you might not care about this, but some of the things going on here will have an impact far beyond Twitter. The changes that Elon Musk are making affect not only Twitter, but the way information is shared and for instance, they won't block COVID misinformation anymore on Twitter. So there's a, there's a lot of things going on here, and we don't want this to be like the Twitter show or the Elon Musk show. But because there's some very specific things that are relevant to Apple and the Apple community, it's worth talking about this and kind of going through some some of the the things that have been discussed as part of this ongoing conversation that's happening on Twitter. So getting to that timeline you mentioned, the first kind of big thing that maybe started the ball rolling on some of this on November 20th, Phil Schiller deleted his Twitter account. There were some people, by the way, who were also saying that Apple removed its tweets. That's not actually true. The at Apple account doesn't tweet publicly. Any posts that you're seeing from Apple, those are actually promoted tweets, which don't have to be on the public timeline. And so Apple has actually always used its Twitter account that way. And promoted tweets, what that means is they're advertisements. They're paid tweets. Exactly. Right. So which is an entirely different thing from you just posting something to, to your brand account. So Apple does not as a rule, they don't post anything on their main Twitter profile. So there has never been, a, you know, a list of posts from Apple if you go to at Apple. If you think about it, with the number of people that follow Apple and that would retweet their tweets, they could get free advertising. Yeah, they could. It's interesting. Well, the vast majority of brands on Twitter actually do that. It's kind of funny that Apple decides to be different. I guess they just think different. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Phil Schiller never really used Twitter a lot. I followed him on Twitter. You'd see a tweet every month or two. 
here's this great new product. We've innovated again or go team, whatever his favorite sports team was. Unlike Tim Cook, who tweets, I don't want to say a lot, but very often, he tweets about new Apple stores. He tweets about new Apple products and stuff. He tweets photos when he visits an Apple store. There were a couple of those this week. So there are a number of Apple, high-level Apple employees that do use Twitter more or less regularly, but none of them are like big tweeters. Right. Yeah. Tim Tim Cook is probably the the biggest, well, clearly he's the CEO. I mean, he but he's the biggest Apple executive who's still on the platform and using it regularly, it regularly enough. Yes. And other than Tim Cook and Phil Schiller and the others, there are a number of official Apple accounts like Apple Support, which is actually quite proactive. If you tweet them about a problem, they'll ask you to DM them and they'll ask information about your device. They'll try and help you and they'll lead you toward more support. There's Apple Music, there's Apple TV Plus, there's Apple TV. So Apple has a lot of Twitter exposure, but the brand itself, the core brand, is not an account that tweets. But the fact that Phil Shore deleted his Twitter account was, I want to say, a passive-aggressive way of saying, I don't want to be part of this anymore. So Phil Schiller deleted his account. By the way, I'm very curious to see what happens after 30 days, because I suspect that somebody's probably going to register his username as a parody account. It's kind of funny because it seems like what a couple of people have done is intentionally gotten on Twitter's bad side, done something to get suspended from Twitter so that their username wouldn't become available. Yes, we mentioned it recently that if you delete your account on Twitter, your username will be available in 30 days. And this will be interesting to see if someone else takes the Phil Schiller account or P. Schiller and impersonates him. With the whole issue around impersonation and verification, which we discussed recently, this would be a high-level impersonation. Now, I think the best thing to do if you want to leave Twitter is just make your account private. Leave the account there, but don't do anything. Twitter won't delete the account. If you don't want anyone to tweet to you, if you don't want anyone to see what you've tweeted, if you have a username, which could be problematic if someone else used it, that they could pretend to be you, then don't delete the account. Moving on. So Elon Musk, five days after that, Somebody had asked Elon Musk a question publicly. They tagged him. They said, if Apple and Google boot Twitter from their app stores, Elon Musk should produce his own smartphone. Half the country would happily ditch the bias, blah, 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 blah. So he responds to that. And he says, I certainly hope it does not come to that. But yes, if there is no other choice, I will make an alternative phone. And this got like a huge number of headlines. I saw this on like mainstream news. They were talking about Elon Musk is making a phone. Right. So let's do some fact check. Half the country does not use Twitter. There are about 200, maybe 250 monthly average users around the world. Let's say 50 million people in the US. I don't know. Second, while it probably wouldn't be difficult to make a Twitter-branded phone. You get an Android phone manufacturer. You get what's called a white-label phone. They build the phone, and you just put your brand on it, right? It wouldn't be difficult. But how would he get the Twitter app on the phone in order to have... Because the whole point here is that if they're not in the app stores, then he can't sell his $8 a month blue check thing. So what is there an alternate app store for... Android, because it would have to be an Android phone that would allow him to get the payments for this? Well, so let's let's back up a little bit. First of all, if Google, for whatever reason, decided to remove the Twitter app from the Google Play Store, 
first of all, there's other alternative stores on Android, which you, you don't officially have on, on iOS. But on Android, there are other app stores that you can use instead. There are alternative platforms where you can get apps. You can also sideload apps on Android, meaning that it doesn't have to come from a store. You can download the file directly from a de developer's website and install it. But if you do that, you won't be paying through the phone. You'll be paying from the developer's website. And if Elon Musk wants to charge $8 a month for people to have that blue check, how is he going to get the money? Well, send people to the Twitter website, they subscribe, and then they can use any Twitter app that they want. Here's the thing about that. Regardless of how you're getting that app onto your device, if you're using an alternative app store to, to, to distribute the Twitter app, if you're offering it as a sideloadable app, those would be both Android scenarios. On iOS, there are alternative app stores, but for the most part, you kind of have to jailbreak your phone, and that's not something we recommend doing because it's not that's good not for your security. Happen. So, but there is another thing that you can do. People often forget that that you can have web apps and you can put them on your desktop. Before there was an app store on the iPhone, this is what Steve Jobs was telling everybody to do. Right? You make a version of your website that is adapted to specifically work on iPhone and it behaves like an app, it can live as an icon on your iPhone home screen. So this is something that Twitter could choose to do if they wanted to. And, you know, there's nothing to prevent Twitter from offering the $8, you know, blue check, whatever, Twitter blue subscription, regardless of what other platforms you're using. In fact, they wouldn't have to pay the so-called Apple tax, as Elon Musk started calling it. Right. So we wanted to talk about the secret Apple tax because Elon Musk tweeted that, that this is a secret that people have to pay 30 percent. We've been talking about this for years. Every tech site talks about this. It was 30 percent until, I believe, a year ago when they dropped the commission for smaller developers. I think it's less than a million dollars in sales in a year. It's 30 percent over a million and it's 15 percent under. And this has been the case since the very beginning of the App Store. And a lot of developers complain that it's you know onerous, that 30 percent is way too much. Apple did make a change as I said, so smaller developers don't pay it, but it's not secret. It, maybe Elon Musk didn't know about it, but it's not secret. Right. By the way, several of these tweets have been fact-checked by, by the Twitter community, and so there are some notes. It, it, interestingly, the fact-checks don't show up on the web version of Twitter, but if you're using your iOS at Twitter app, some of these tweets actually will have a clarification that the community thought that you might like to know this additional information. So one other thing Musk tweeted, Apple has also threatened to withhold Twitter from the app store, but won't tell us why. So I have some thoughts on that. I think probably what is going on here is that perhaps somebody from Apple gave somebody at Twitter a warning that if you are allowing your platform to be used to spread misinformation, right, in particular what Apple would deem COVID misinformation, right, then, then they may choose to ban the Twitter app from the App Store. That's not something that they're saying they are doing, as far as anybody knows, but something that perhaps Apple said privately to Twitter that they would consider doing if it got to a certain point. 
Didn't they ban the Tumblr app at one point because of pornography on Tumblr? I don't know about that particular one, but there have been cases before. One other example of actually a social network getting banned, right? Parler was accused of being involved in January 6th preparation and and so forth. There is a precedent for this. Tumblr was removed from the App Store back in 2018 because of child pornography. And I believe Tumblr's back, but Apple is very strict about this. And and apparently, I, I only discovered this recently, there's a lot of porn on Twitter. So there are lots of reasons why the Twitter app could be removed because of misinformation, because of pornography, because of a lack of moderation, among other things. Yeah. And, and accounts that post explicit content are supposed to specifically label things. You know, their account is supposed to be labeled as 18 plus. You're supposed to get, you know, warnings before you see any of that kind of content, but that's not to say that you always necessarily will. Of course, you know, it's entirely possible for somebody to post anything at any time from any account. And um, yeah, there's going to be stuff posted on there before moderation uh, happens. That So you, you do have to be careful about that on any, on any sort of public platform, right? Twitter is just one example of many. On the 28th, Elon Musk tweeted, Apple has mostly stopped advertising on Twitter. Do they hate free speech in America? I find this one of the most twisted arguments I've ever heard, that if I don't choose to advertise your platform, I hate free speech. Isn't Apple's decision to not advertise free speech? Aren't they exercising their right? Won't even get into the whole First Amendment thing, because the First Amendment only involves the government censoring speech. But Apple is not against free speech. They're against being they, – they don't want their promoted tweets to be right above some sort of hate-filled Nazi-type tweet. And that's the real problem. And that's why so many companies – I think 50 of the top 100 companies have stopped advertising on Twitter. John Gruber on Daring Fireball has pointed out that Apple's ad spend on Twitter in the first quarter was $48 million. That's 4% of Twitter's advertising. Take those top 50 companies and – advertisers don't want to be associated with bad content. It's really simple. There's a lot of public conversation about Twitter, right? There's a lot of concern about the potential direction that Twitter is going. At the same time, right now, Twitter is not quite as bad as some people are, are speculating that it might become. So I'm not deleting my Twitter account. I think that as of right now, the platform is still very useful. There's a lot of engagement there. There's a lot of really good content there. So we're not saying you have to delete your Twitter account. When we talk about this, we're, we're, we're just letting you know that there are better things to do than deleting your Twitter account if you choose to leave the platform. And we're letting you know that the Apple tax is not secret, that people have known about this for a long time. So one more point about whether Elon Musk would need to create an alternative phone. We talked about alternative ways to get an app onto an iPhone or an Android device. As far as creating an alternative phone, if he really wanted to do that, he certainly could. There's source code available, right, for the Android operating system. So he could make something based on Android. I don't really see the point because, again, there are already Google Android alternatives, right? We mentioned recently Graphene OS is, is an alternative version of Android that has a bunch of stuff stripped out of it to make it more private uh, and more potentially more secure as well. So there are already Android alternatives out there. And so it doesn't really make sense for him to have his own platform. One other note on this, one thing that actually could be kind of interesting about him or his companies making a phone is 
connection with Starlink, right? Apple has recently started doing this emergency SOS via satellite feature, right? On the very newest phones, you can potentially connect to a satellite in some limited circumstances if you're in the middle of nowhere and you have no cellular reception. But Elon Musk does also run Starlink, right? And so that's a possibility that maybe there could be something there, right? Maybe that could potentially be a thing. But again, it would probably have to be based on Android. I can't imagine starting a platform completely from scratch. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to choose the best drive to back up your Mac. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users for over 25 years. And our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security. Personal Backup, to keep your important files safe from ransomware and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Ventura and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Indigo Mac Podcast listeners. Indigo, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Okay, when I said earlier that I bought cat food on Black Friday, I fibbed because actually I bought something else on Black Friday, but I bought it before Black Friday because I knew the price wasn't going to go up. I have long used two time machine disks together, redundant time machine disks. And if you set up two time machine disks, your Mac will alternate. It will do disk one one backup and the next backup it'll do disk two. And this is a really good way to have time machine backups and to make sure that if a disk fails, you've still got all the backups. A couple of weeks ago, my two time machine disks started making noises. The kind of thing, you know, that grinding noise of hard drives and they would keep running when my Mac was asleep. And I looked up in my accounting to see when I bought them and they were three and a half years old. They had two year warranties and I just don't want to take chances. So I went platterless for Time Machine. I bought two internal SSDs with enclosures. You know, you can buy a little disc and you get a plastic enclosure and it, there's no screws. It just slides in and you connect it to your Mac. And they're only four terabytes, whereas my drives were eight terabytes, which isn't a problem for Time Machine because my Time Machine drives had more than two years of backups. So I'm not getting rid of them. I'm keeping them in case I need to go back. And these will easily have a year of backups before they start deleting the old ones. The cost was about the cost of a good eight terabyte drive to get a four terabyte SSD. So you can say that it's twice as expensive. On the other hand, it's platterless, no moving parts. So there's a chance it's going to last a lot longer. They're self-powered. You don't need those power bricks and wires. You just plug them into a hub behind the iMac. I've got short cables and it's really easy. So I updated an article we have on the Intego Mac Security blog called How to Choose the Best Hard Drive or SSD to Back Up Your Mac to cover the various options that we have today. 
Yeah, this this is actually really good. It's, it had been a while since this article had been updated, and really a lot of things had changed recently. First of all, prices, I, I think that's one of the biggest differences, right? It, it's it's gotten a lot cheaper as time has gone on. And, and this is predictable, right? This is kind of the way it is with any technology. But as time goes on, the things that start out as really expensive new technologies actually become much more affordable. So SSDs were like ridiculously expensive when they first came out. You got so little storage for how much you were paying per gigabyte that it just didn't make sense for probably most people, but we're getting to the point now where even though SSDs technically are more expensive per gigabyte or terabyte, they're, they're still, they're, they're, they're kind of getting into the like consumer affordable price range. I think in, in a very big way, I have a drawer with old SSDs, like 128 gigabytes and 256 and 512. I have two other SSDs connected to my iMac. One of them is a two terabyte SSD that stores my music library. Another is a one terabyte SSD where I clone my iMac every day. So these are things that I bought gradually, right? I bought the one terabyte first, then I bought the two terabyte, and now I'm up to four. In a couple of years, I'll be able to replace my last two spinning hard drives, which I use for my media collection, and a second one to back up my media collection. By the way, if all of this so far sounds Greek to you, <laughs> we should probably step back and briefly mention, okay, so the history of of drives, the short version of it is that Traditionally, we've had spinning platters inside of hard drives. So there's actual moving parts inside of hard drives. And then in recent years, we've started to transition to solid state media. So that means SSDs is short for solid state drive. So that means that there's no more spinning parts. This is all just data being recorded onto microchips. It's a very different type of technology. They're both used for storage. There's pros and cons, I would say, to each one. The The biggest pro for these older traditional like spinning platter drives is greater capacity storage for a cheaper price. One advantage, though, of solid state memory generally is that it's much faster and potentially could last a lot longer because there's no moving parts. You mentioned earlier that there have been a lot of changes in hard drives in recent years. And one of the biggest ones is when I bought my last hard drives, eight terabytes was about the biggest you could get for normal consumer use. Now you can buy 20 terabyte hard drives. They have these new technologies with multiple heads. For some reason, they put helium inside the drive and maybe there's less friction. I don't even know. I tried to look this up. There, there are a, It's not just one new technology. It's a number of new technologies have changed. And I mean, 20 terabytes, that is an awful lot of data. Most of us don't need that. And I was saying to someone the other day, I would be hesitant about a 20 terabyte drive putting all that data. But then the first time I bought a one terabyte hard drive, I probably said the same thing. You wouldn't need a 20 terabyte drive unless you do a lot of work with video. And so that's one of the advantages of hard drives that when you really need that capacity, you can get it. Although a lot, you can put a lot of video on four terabytes of SSD. So it, it's a balance. I want to start out with a simple thought experiment of how much storage you need. My iMac has a terabyte. My MacBook Air has 500 gigabytes. My rule of thumb has always been my backup drive, not my time machine, but just a standard backup drive, should be about twice the size of the storage on your Mac. Because 
you're always going to need more storage than what's on your Mac because your Mac may not last as long as the drive. You may replace the Mac with something with more storage. You may have more storage that you don't want to put on the drive. So if you want to back up, you should get double the storage. If you want to use Time Machine, which saves multiple versions, then you want to get a lot more. So I got these four terabyte SSDs to back up my one terabyte Mac, which isn't full. It's got about 300 terabytes of free space. And that gives a lot of room for this sort of backup. I will just add, if you don't currently have an external hard drive or a network attached storage drive that you're backing up to, it's definitely a good idea. We, we talked many times about backing up and why it's so important to do that. You just, you never know when a drive is going to fail. And if you don't have a backup, you could end up in a bad situation where you're losing important files, uh, important maybe family pictures or other things that are personally important to you. So make sure that you do backup. Of course, you can use Time Machine as well as Intego Personal Backup. Both you can be used together. And it's a great idea to make sure that you're backing up everything to an external hard drive. In my article, I link to an article from Backblaze. They do online backups and I use their service. They have an article, How Long Do Disk Drives Last? And they currently have about 200,000 drives, and they publish every quarter statistics about reliability, how many failures they have. They say that after about five years, most drives are going to start failing. And one thing they say, which is worth remembering, every hard drive you buy will fail at some point. My logic had always been about three years, and I kind of missed the three-year anniversary of my time machine drives because I just don't want to take the chance. I'd rather just buy new drives and worry about them failing. My media drives that I bought, I think, a year and a half ago have five-year guarantees, whereas the previous drives that I was using for time machine only had two. So I think there's a lot in terms of reliability that's improved. Now, let's just go through the different types of drive. We talked about external hard drives. If you need the space, that makes sense. I mentioned external SSDs before. Now, I have two of these little SanDisk Extreme Pro SSDs. They're very fast. I have a one terabyte and a two terabyte, but I don't need the speed for time machine backups, which is why I bought the much less expensive internal ones that I mentioned in the enclosures. The other option you can get, and, and this is a kind of a weird thing, and I used to have this years ago, is you can get something called a drive dock that you just stick a bare hard drive into. I link to one by Inatech that has two bays for two drives. And if you have a lot of data that you need to move around and back up, it's really good if you take drives off-site. This is a good solution because, well, the hard drives are cheaper than things in enclosures. You have a single power supply for two drives, et cetera. It's a pretty good solution if you're going to be moving a lot of drives around. Now, Josh mentioned earlier a network drive or a network attached storage device, and I have a Synology. I use it for time machine backups of my MacBook Air, so I don't have to plug anything into it. I use it as a file server to store my Plex library. If you have one, you can back up your Mac to it. The problem with network time machine backups is that they back up into a disk image, a special type of disk image called a sparse image, which expands as needed. They tend to corrupt much more often than you would like for a backup. And when they corrupt, you have to just throw it out and start a new backup. One of the key points of Time Machine is you can have backups going back for years, even if you're not using the drives currently, like the ones I just stopped using, I'll keep them. If I need to go back and look for a file from three years ago, it might be there. The final possibility is these little portable hard drives, and they're about the size of a deck of cards. 
like my external SSD, they plug in without power. You can get a four terabyte drive for a hundred bucks. And if you're hesitating about buying any kind of drive to back up your Mac, this is what I would recommend. This is the easiest. They're not very fast, but for a hundred bucks, you just plug it into your Mac. You either do one-off backups or time machines. It's probably the cheapest solution for backing up your Macs. And there probably are still some sales. Uh, by the way, if you're looking for Cyber Week, it's still going on. <laughs> we've had Black Friday. We've had Cyber Monday. And, and now there's Cyber Week sales going on. So you've still got a couple more days that you can get uh, a, a potentially discounted drive. Here. I said last time, it's not Black Friday. It's Black November. I'm just looking on Amazon UK. The drive that I bought is five pounds more than when I bought it. So it's still cheap. I mean, the retail price was 381 pounds and it's 31% off at 263. And of course, if you check something like Camel, 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 which is a website that tracks Amazon prices, you'll find that yeah, this isn't, it hasn't been 381 pounds for a long time, but this is a low price for this sort of device. You're going to have the Christmas sales. You're going to have the post-Christmas sales. You're going to have the January sales. They're going to be going on forever. Whatever you do, get a drive to back up your Mac. And since we mentioned Cyber Week, just as a reminder, Intego's sale, if you if you missed Black Friday, if you missed Cyber Monday, Intego's sale is still going on this week. So if you're not currently using Intego software, or if you know somebody who needs antivirus software, whether they're on Mac or Windows, we have software for, for both, you could gift them a subscription this holiday season. It's a great time to do that. That's a great idea. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>